Hello, and welcome to the KCW Today podcast. I'm Max Horbury. On today's show, I visit the Royal Academy of Arts with our senior arts editor, Don Grant, to hear his thoughts on the Jasper Johns exhibition. I think, although he touches on um, pop art by using popular imagery, he is more of a sort of proto-dadoist, if you like. In this episode's Editor's Picks, we have Max Feldman reading his article on creative writing from this month's edition. One of the central things holding people back is that if a prospective writer ever does sit down and start rattling the keys, the work that emerges tends not to be an elegant fusion of literary influences, but instead something close to Jeff Goldblum in The Fly, a hideous mutant begging to be put out of its misery. And finally, Max Feldman will stick around to give us his take on the new Stephen King adaptation of It and we discuss this increasing trend of 80s nostalgia in popular culture. There's a lot of stuff in the novel that you could not screen ever um, without getting arrested. So here at the Royal Academy with our senior arts editor, Don Grant. Don Grant, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. So we're here at the Jasper Johns exhibit. Tell me a little bit about Jasper Johns. Give us a little bit of context about who he was. Johns emerged from a 1940s experience of abstract expressionism. He and Robert Rauschenberg took a far more painterly approach to the everyday environment, using symbols of urban culture and objects from everyday American life. A door, a window frame, a clock, a cup, a chair, whilst combining more graphic symbols like flags, targets, letters and numerals, in a way that pop artists like Roy Lichtenstein and Andy Warhol were not. What really doesn't come across when you see Jasper Johns reproduced in any art book is the texture. And one of his most iconic images is the American flag, which is actually not oil or acrylic, it's actually encaustic, which is mixing pigments with melted wax, beeswax, and painting it onto a collage of, in this case, newsprint. So in fact, if one goes closer, you get a real feeling of the texture of the painting, which, as I say, gets flattened when reproduced. And this is a great revelation, will be a revelation for a lot of people who come to this exhibition. And that applies to quite a few of the paintings in in this show. This painting, Full Start, uh, which is probably one of his, apart from his flags, one of the most iconic of his images, he's branched out into colour in a big way. And um, this one, he's splashed colour on and then stenciled on the various names of the colours, although they don't match what background there again so blue is on an orange and red is on a yellow it doesn't really matter um, in 2006 the Chicago-based hedge fund Citadel bought this for 80 million dollars which is the highest price ever paid for a living artist 80 million dollars it's a very early John so it's 59 and uh, it, he just got out of this um, this kind of obsession with greys and he's suddenly exploded into colour in the most glorious way in, in oil, oil on canvas. 
It's yeah. like an explosion, you know, and um, you've just gone mad with it. It's lovely. I, I love it. I think it's tremendous power and uh, vitality and um, vibrancy. Yeah, I would. Uh, I haven't got the money, but I certainly would have that on my wall. Art historians and critics just love to categorise artists. So you take your pick from pop art, neo-dadaist, painterly abstraction, post-painterly abstraction, with such variations as hard edge and colour field, modernist and post-modernist, the list goes on. Um, I think, although he touches on um, pop art by using popular imagery, he is more of a sort of proto dadaist if you like. <laughs> anyway. No, he does seem very hard to kind of categorise. Well, he, he's always moving on and he's always experimenting. I mean, this one, I think, is, is the, the room that m most people will rec recognise as, as pop art, I think. That's the word that's going to spring to mind when they come in here, because it is colourful. It is, you know, um, using a lot of things from every day. And it is the right period, so all around him there were people doing. So you think that pop art is, a, is the wrong label for him as an artist? I do, I don't think it's... Because it is, it's, it's a little phase he goes through, and he doesn't really um, stop and um, explore it further than what you see in front of you. So this is quite a small aspect of, of pop. Uh, interesting. These are it's called the Four Seasons, and he's taken um, image um, of himself, which is um, actually a cast shadow, which is drawn around, and then added various various elements. And again, we have this um, play, a sort of playful approach, taking the the famous um, optical illusions with the with the vase. Is it a white vase or is it two faces, black faces, addressing each other? And then the the duck and the or is it a duck or is it a is it a hare or a rabbit? And and then at the bottom of uh, of spring we have a young boy, which presumably is him coming through. But in the, all the others, you have the same cast shadow uh, which is outlined and, uh, and added various other there's a snowman snow coming down, various objects painted objects and in summer we have body parts we have a circular arrow we still have the, the outline of his shadow and a seahorse and again there's our famous Mona Lisa and of course his, his own iconic flags. I think it's very curious how he, in these, in these ones more than any of them, that it feels very self-referential, mm. that it feels like he's specifically, as opposed to using the same subject over and over again, which many painters do, in these it seems like he's specifically making you try to think of his work specifically by putting them all together. Yeah, I think that's true. I think he's, he's referenced himself within these within his paintings, and not only that, he's, he's put in his own imagery of his own work, as well as himself. So he's in every single 
one of these four seasonal paintings. And I guess this is the closest to a Jasper John self-portrait that we'll ever get. I've, I've never seen one, so yes, probably is. <laughs> Even though it's in silhouette or outline. So this is a kind of a good overview for people who want to get a good understanding of his entire career. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, this, you, they haven't had a retrospective of Jasper John's for many decades. So it's, it's well overdue. And the fact he's still alive and he survives all these other, all these other artists, most of them anyway, from the um, 50s, 60s and 70s. And he's still going. Jasper John's Something Resembling Truth is opening on Saturday the 23rd of September and continues until the 10th of December. Our editor's pick. Max Feldman reads from our September issue, Creating Creatives, Can You Teach Creative Writing? One of the more or less truthful cliches of humanity is that deep down, most people feel they've probably got a novel in them. Whether they are actively pursuing this hazy dream, i.e. boring their friends for years with frequent assertions about how they're working on a novel in my spare time by occasionally writing down a potential name of one, or a one-liner that pops into their heads. Or perhaps they simply possess a general and only mildly arrogant feeling that if they could only just get some time to themselves, then they could spit out the great American novel in about three weeks, no sweat. Yet somehow, even when the time is found, a million other things fill it, as though subconsciously there is a desire to not break at this rather satisfying illusion. One of the central things holding people back is that, is that if a prospective writer ever does sit down and start rattling the keys, the work that emerges tends not to be an elegant fusion of literary influences, but instead something close to Jeff Goldblum in The Fly, a hideous mutant begging to be put out of its misery. These failures are as inevitable as if you try to run a marathon without ever having exercised. Writing, particularly creative writing, is much like using a muscle, and as is in the physical world, most people are grotesquely out of shape. While the best slash only thing to do in this scenario is the old try, 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 etc. ad infinitum again, aspiring writers of all ages are often drawn towards creative writing courses, as the importance of having some kind of structure for learning is ingrained in us almost for almost every other subject, from painting to sports, so it seems odd to place creative writing outside the realm of the teachable. However, beyond any other subject, the debate over whether it can actually be taught has long been an academic battleground. In university-level education, teaching generally takes place in workshops where the tutor, either an academic with a degree in creative writing or an actual writer, washed up or taking advantage of their fame for a celebrity-level salary, tends to shepherd debate rather than lead it in accordance with workshop protocol, with a focus of getting the students to workshop each other's stories. This raises concerns, considering that if no one doing the workshops has been published, then how can their opinions be taken seriously? Isn't there a danger of being put on the wrong path due to an overly assured undergrad in a beret and a goatee who convince you that punctuation is bourgeois? The central concern, however, has always been the question of whether creativity and drive can even be taught. There is no single way to teach how to structure a novel because it is so personal. This scepticism is widely shared, and one way for creative writing programs to handle it is simply to concede the point. The University of Iowa Writers' Workshop is the most renowned creative writing program in the world. Pulitzer Prize winners and poet laureates galore have, are graduates of the program. However, while Iowa pseudo-humbly acknowledges the success of its students, the school's official position is that the course had nothing to do with their success. 
The fact that the workshop can claim as a Lumi nationally and internationally prominent poets, novelists and short story writers is, we believe, more the result of what, the, what they brought here than of what they gained from us, the Iowa website explains. Iowa merely admits people who are really good at writing. It puts them up for two years and then, like an academic version of The Wizard of Oz, it gives them a diploma. We continue to look for the most promising talent in the country, the school says, in our conviction that writing cannot be taught but that writers can be encouraged. However, the arguments against creative writing courses have the unfortunate side effects of helping to shore up some of the actively unhelpful and patently false ideas that writers are chosen by some sort of celestial lottery, like it's a gene that flares up generationally and without which writing of a higher calibre than laundry lists is impossible. No one is born a writer. You are shaped to become one by your life experiences and your overall ambitions. One thing that literary courses legitimately can't teach is the hunger for success. But for many people, trying to hone their skills by themselves can be a dispiriting experience and often enough to turn them off writing altogether. Whereas the variety of techniques and processes taught in classes, creative writing courses are often accused of turning out cookie-cutter novelists who are functionally identical, this is generally the accusation with the least validity, can be a helpfully demystifying springboard into writing for a teenager or adult who might want to learn the skill for any number of reasons. For students looking to study creative writing as a means to become a published and successful author, there are also plenty of reasons to undertake a course. Whilst the courses might not be able to make you into a good writer by themselves, for those who find themselves more receptive to communal teaching, they can hone skills faster, cutting down a writer's learning the ropes woodshedding period, potentially by years. In addition, creative writing courses have an individualistic nature that can stand out from the well-honed machine of modern academia. The course is essentially focused on what the students are producing in a unique way, compared to other degrees where the work of others is necessarily a central focal point. Overall, imagination is not something that can be standardised or marked, but much like art schools, institutions are capable of expanding the horizons of those willing to augment their own worldview. It's hard to put a price on learning, although university vice-chancellors certainly seem to feel qualified to do so, but those who want their relationship with the written word to be a two-way street, creativity can be priceless. You can find more of Max's writing in this month's issue. This month we see a new incarnation of Pennywise the Clown. Uh, the Dancing Clown, if to give him his full title. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's Pennywise oh, okay. the Dancing Clown, in the book anyway. <laughs> uh, in the new feature film adaptation of Stephen King's novel, uh, It, um, I'm joined by Max Feldman of Feldman Reviews. How are you, good sir? I'm very good. It's a pleasure to be here, Max. Oh, fantastic. I mean, it, there's, a, there's a kind of a running joke a little bit in the office that we're both called Max. No one ever knows who's being referred to. Chaos ensues, and I feel like, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the the listeners will will figure it well, out, we, right? You know, was, we were thinking about calling this like Eminem, but apparently there's some weird contract dispute about that. We can't, yeah, can't. It's a it's a name that we can't use. Well, I mean, I've been suggested take it to the max. Take it to the max. I think Pepsi has that one. Take it to the max by oh, Pepsi. Well, really? I think it's yeah, Pepsi Max. I think that they have that. You know, it's like this sick beat with Taylor. We're basically the, we're we're, we're, the, we're like uh, Katy Perry in this particular scenario to, to Pepsi's Taylor Swift. You know, I, I can live with that. That's fine. okay. Yeah. So, so <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Um, so you've 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 read the novel, mm-hmm. um, the the humongous doorstopper novel. Um, you've seen the nineteen nineties sort of made for TV mm. miniseries slash movie. Um, I have done neither of those things. Uh, what did you think of the film? Well, I thought, like, as an adaptation went, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the novel that you could not screen ever 
um, without getting arrested. Like, uh, there's in fact one notable scene that basically involves what can only be described as a preteen orgy, and that doesn't happen, thank God, like, in at any point in the film. So we got to that point in the film, and I could felt myself tensing up, going, but no, thankfully. Um, I thought that it was a beautifully shot, and, like, the effects were great. Not very scary, though, like, mm, yeah. all things considered, which is something of a problem in some ways if you're, like, adapting a horror novel. But was was the book scary? Was the made-for-TV... I can't imagine the made-for-TV thing was actually yeah. that scary. It was more scary because everyone, like, was mm. dying at the time. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, the main point about the 1991 is it's not very good beyond... Uh, but, I mean, the book... I mean, I'm... I am saying this from the perspective of someone who read it when he was 15 and was therefore his psychic defences were not as well defined. Maybe if I read it now, I just shrug my shoulders. But I remember there being certain parts of that book where, you know, like, I wouldn't, like, hide the book or anything. But, you know, you'd occasionally, you'd you'd stop for a little bit, have a little bit of a deep breath and then go back into it. And, uh, like, you know, and even, you know, like, you, there, there's a bit of, there's, oh, children being chased by a clown in in the film. And they did it very creatively, like, you know, but... There wasn't that same kind of feeling of just claws into the seat seat handles. Uh, I mean, how how did you? Yeah, I mean, I I didn't find it very scary either. I mean, I thought it was tense, and the you know those little moments are you know, but in a way the the, the scares were all very predictable. They're mm-hmm. very kind of typical scares. Where you you kind of know what's going to happen. Um, I mean, actually, for me, the the horror part of it. I, I I heard it described by someone as more of like a horror adventure story, yeah. and that works really well. It takes a lot of cues from Stand by Me, which is obviously a short story by uh, Stephen King called the The Body. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the the real takeaway from it actually wasn't really the horror elements; it was the the comedy elements, the the the, the stuff about the kids and mm. and them, and and they were very funny. I mean, um, yeah, very tight script. I thought, um, yeah. yeah, more tight than you'd expect for that kind of thing. I mean, Finn. What's his name? Phil uh, Wolfhart. Phil Wolfhart. Who I thought was just he's he plays one of the kids and he is hysterical. I mean, he's mm. probably the best thing in in the whole film. It was almost a more successful version of what J.J. Abrams was going for with Super Eight in that trying to resurrect that kind of Spielbergian, you know, uh, tummy of age story with a with a monster in the background of it. Only that it was transplanted into something that was sort of intended to be a horror movie in the first place. And so it's kind of it's kind of interesting that like that in some ways that it almost felt like two films stitched together, like quite, quite neatly stitched together. But like, you know, the, in some, like the, the horror element almost could feel a bit tacked on thanks to the, thanks to the CGI. So th- there was an article that I read that was, that was sort of saying how, um, one of the things that it really, it really misses or it really misses, mm. um, is, is the fact that it, the creature, it is meant to be this sort of almost primordial evil. Mm hmm. And it really never feels like that in the film. Um, in the books, I mean, I don't want to give anything away, but the way that sort of the final fight against it takes place in the in the film is quite pedestrian compared to the book, where it's a full on is like a it's the thing is called the ritual of Chud, and it's all very metaphysical. And there's a lot, as I was saying, there's a lot of nods in the um, in the film to things that, that happen in the book if you read them and stuff that like I in fact noticed you at one point going like what <laughs> like yeah, um yeah. But, but and and so they kind of touched on it but I think by as you say that they, they by skipping out all of that metaphysical stuff you don't get a sense of what it really is in any way shape or form and not in a kind of horror is scary where you don't know he's just he's just a clown he can change forms 
in, and I, hopefully we'll do that more in the second part of showing this sort of, you know, it's, it's a larger thing. And they, they very briefly touch upon it of kind of saying, you know, all the horrors of the town dairy have mm. been to do with this being it. Mm. An example of a, uh, oh, actually a, a TV show doing this better was Stranger Things. Mm. Um, a show in which, you know, the, the upside down is, it feels, even though it's a small gang of characters, there's a sense that it's a, it's a big evil, that it's a, it's a, it's a larger scale thing. Mm. And I never really got that in, in the, in this film of it. Yeah. As I said, uh, you know, there was, there was that, there's obviously going to be a comparison with Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's not, I don't think, insignificant to think that they've, they've taken the, the original setting, which was in the 1950s, and now placed it into the 1980s. And there seems to be a little bit of a trend now in, in popular culture uh, of this sort of 80s nostalgia. I think it's interesting because we've sort of been seeing it in music for quite a while. I'd say the last uh, five to seven years, maybe. Like, there's been a lot of... 80s influence and so the fact it's starting to bleed through into I mean I guess it makes sense on quite a lot of levels and the people who are you know making films at the moment like I mean all of the big shall we say like Guardians of the Galaxy which was you know broke all kinds of records and that's basically very 80s influence yeah, yeah. yeah I mean soundtrack from the and well yeah and just like in well actually an 80s soundtrack seems to basically be a calling card that if you want to make a kind of crossover hit film you need to have an incredibly 80s soundtrack yeah, and there was that Atomic Blonde recently mm -hmm. that everyone was just went it's not a very good film the soundtrack's great though. yeah i mean i was in some ways it's yeah you know, it, this is is on the 80s nostalgia train and i don't think it leans into it as hard as um stranger things does but that's part of the point of stranger things conceit which was you know put as many different 80s sci-fi and horror into a blender and just yeah you know, <laughs> and, and see what comes out like kind of yeah. 80s puree but i mean i think in some ways it's kind of the first sign of this kind of 80s, you know, that like bringing the whole 80s vibe back might have even been all the way back in, I think it was 2008 when Drive came out, which was that kind of near, you know, Nicholas Winding reference kind of, you know, the whole, the whole from how it looked to the kind of driving kind of pop soundtrack. At the time, it hadn't really been done before. And it was that was like, like the cool avant-garde big hit and then over the like the next couple of years I start to see it trickling more and more as people realise that you know because the 80s is often a generation that people laugh at but you know because it's particularly people who weren't alive at the time the the signifiers of it are very are very easy to make broad and ridiculous um, and so you know up until then I think it was only being done in a kind of mockery way I mean my my big issue is to do with what you know the, the, the difference between being derivative and being subvertive mm. take the bully he is in the in it he's a very stereotyped character mm. he is you know without compassion he's super mean you know you're watching that in 2017 you go well i've seen this a hundred times you know come on and then you can either say oh well you know it's it's you know it's part of playing into you know what the films in the 80s were like mm. or you can you know or you can say actually do you know what if you take something like Stranger Things, mm. where they actually do a very clever subversion, where they, um, the bully character starts off as a bully, you think he's going to be a bully, and then he turns out he's uh, he's actually a really yeah, nice guy. Out, yeah. I think that like you to be if you can take the simple building blocks of something like you know like an eighties kind of film or story and change it up even slightly, then the the kind of that cognitive dissonance can really really pay off as you were as you were talking about and like it's why that i think i mentioned it earlier that uh 
JJ uh, Abrams um, Super 8 didn't work at all because it was just a, you know, it was just a less talented director attempting to do a Spielberg movie from the 80s. Um, well, Max Feldman, thank you for, uh, for joining me. Well, Max Horbury, thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all we have time for. You can find our latest edition of Kensington, Chelsea and Westminster Today distributed across London or at kcwtoday.co.uk. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.